Do you want to have hold of those verses in front of you? Uh, We're going to look through this interesting little section in Titus. We've been working through um, this letter, this little letter in the New Testament, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, who is the sort of like the, the, um, uh, I don't know, the apostolic um, team member who's been sent to Crete to go and bring health and strength to the new churches that have been planted there. When they've heard the gospel, they've formed communities, and yet, as Paul knows, um, they're, they're, not, they're not very healthy, and they need some help to steer that and to try and bring health and strength to them. So that's, that's really the, the tone of this letter. And we've been seeing here that the, the two sort of uh, two twin tracks of the, you know, the purpose of the letter really is, is for Titus to get the truth straight and also then to allow the truth to shape you. That's, that seems to be the, the theme tunes of this, of this letter. Get the truth straight and allow the truth to shape you. And when you do that, and when that starts to become uh, something you absorb deeply into your life and into the life of the community, of the church, uh, then we start to live the radical ordinary. And so that's really the message of, of today's uh, talk is living the radical ordinary. And so what we're going to see as we go through, we're going to ask three questions actually as we go through uh, these, 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 these verses that we've just had read to us. First of all, what is the radical ordinary? What does it mean? Uh, secondly, what does the radical ordinary achieve in life? What's the purpose of it? And thirdly and finally then, how do we become radically ordinary? Um, it might sound like a bit of a paradox to you that you can be both ordinary and radical, and yet I hope to show you that it's not at all. Um, in fact, it seems to be that you can live lives of, of great influence and power um, in community, and yet those lives are not on the surface going to be necessarily flashy, as, as we would understand it by worldly perspectives. They're going to be ordinary lives. Um, and yet, when you allow the truth to shape you, it's, it's, it's not just a boring ordinary, it's a radical ordinary. It's an ordinary that has teeth, that has bites, that, that, that uh, gets people uh, to attention. I'll explain a bit about that as we, as we go through. Um, in the last few weeks, we've been seeing, as the, as the letter sort of guides us, first of all, Paul uh, addresses the, the dire need of elders within the church to help the church become healthy. If the church is to be healthy, it needs good elders, it needs strong elders. And, and one of the reasons for that is because of the spread of fake teaching, um, which was the second uh, part of the, the letter so far. Um, elders are sort of, uh, you know, to, to get the truth straight and allow the truth to shape them, and then they are to therefore be able to take on fake versions of the gospel, fake versions of, of the teaching of Jesus. And so naturally, in, in the flow of the letter, uh, we're flowing into uh, relationships within the church. So we've dealt with elders and now we're looking at relationships within the church, the character, you know, the quality of those uh, relationships within the church. And uh, what we'll see as we go through these verses here in Titus 2 is Paul addressing um, in what could be described as the typical household code, the typical household uh, model, which would have been uh, very easily understood and agreed to in sort of ancient Greco-Roman culture, okay? So uh, the, the, the flow that he goes through it will be something that would have been very um, clearly understood by uh, contemporary Greco-Roman 
culture. But as, as we've seen and, and, and as, as other parts of the Bible show us, the, in the early days of the church, the, the house and the church, the home and the church sort of overlap. Um, one flows into another because households were often the first places where church communities met to celebrate the good news of Jesus, to learn uh, the apostolic teaching, to, to do hospitality, to take bread and wine. Uh, that's, that's where it all took place within the, the, the household structure. So it's, it's, it's uh, natural then for Paul to sort of address this household structure and in so doing he's addressing the churches. That's how they were sort of organized, I suppose. But we must be, be, be clear, this is not just restricted to the biological family, okay? Um, in fact, as we, as we see in other parts of Scripture, um, the, the church as family becomes an important metaphor, if not the key metaphor, uh, for understanding the church, certainly for the Apostle Paul. Um, so that's, that's, bear that in mind um, when, when we're reading through this stuff here. So if we get the truth straight and allow the truth to shape us as a community, we will live the radical ordinary. Verse 1, um, Paul says to Titus, I want you, Paul, uh, Titus, to show them how it looks. Right? He says, you know, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what flows out of good, healthy Bible teaching, good, healthy gospel preaching. How it plays out, because if you get the truth straight, you will allow the truth to shape you. It sort of flows one from the other. Um, and, and, you know, he gives us then this sort of vision, I suppose, of what the radical ordinary ought to look like by addressing older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and then uh, slaves or servants, and we'll deal with that term uh, later on. This typical household unit. Just so you know, by the way, as we go through these, we're going to take our time going through these. Um, older men and older women, um, let's just say, refers to those who are generally married, um, have got kids of their own, especially kids who are sort of grown up, you know, teenagers or adults and so forth. So just for the sake of argument, we're saying older men and older women, don't want to offend anyone here, we're just going to go with 40s and over, okay? 40s and over, uh, young men and younger women, um, not, you know, maybe recently married, maybe not married, maybe single, but often in their 20s and 30s and younger, all right? Um, so just for the sake of argument, that's where we're going. So first of all then, older men. He deals with older men. He says, this is what it looks like to live the radical ordinary in community together. Older men, verse 2, he says, um, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Um, as, we, as we've been seeing over the weeks, um, the background of, of, of the sort of the, the microculture within Crete um, was not especially a nice place to live at that time. Um, and typically, uh, you know, the values held by Cretan society were anything but sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Um, it seems to be that alcohol was a big problem among, uh, you know, pretty much every level of society. Uh, excess of alcohol, that is. Uh, drunkenness and trouble uh, and all the things that flow from it. And so Paul's call to the older men in that generation, you know, the 40s and over, he says, I want you to be radically ordinary. I want you to be respectful. I want you to be dignified. I want you to be a master of yourself. I want you to be sound in your faith, in your love, and in your steadfastness. I don't want you to be easily offended, easily wounded, solid, 
Just imagine a church for a second where that characterizes those in that generation. Just imagine how solid and grounded that church would be. Not easily rocked and pushed around. Steadfastness. That's what the older men will bring. Then he deals with older women in verse 3. And he says to them, again, same generation, probably the wives, you know, or the contemporaries of the older men. Likewise, you know, in the same way, he says in verse 3, in the same way, with that thought in mind, he says, they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. There it is again. It's funny how slander and slaves to wine sort of comes together. It sort of loosens the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, Too much cheese and wine evenings. It's a big problem, apparently, in contemporary Cretan society there. But what he says is, I want the older women to be reverent, to be dignified, to be an example then to the younger women. He goes on to say in verse 3, the older women are to teach what is good, teach uh, verbally, but teach by their example what is good. Again, just to be an incredibly positive and strengthening influence. Again, oh, for a church where this characterizes that generation. And then Paul then moves to the young women on the subject, he thinks, you know, on the subject of women. Let me address the younger women uh, in verses 4 through to 5. It seems to be that the younger women of that generation and that uh, culture needed um, clear help and guidance in order for them to get the truth straight, and allow the truth to shape them. Um, There were at that time, as there are now, but there were at that time, of course, powerful forces, uh, prevailing forces in society. Um, And therefore, it seemed to be that those within the church, from top to bottom or in different roles or whatever they are, needed to be reminded uh, to, to control yourself, show some restraint. And it seems to be here too, particularly in the subject of, of younger women, this call for restraint and dignity. Um, and it, it seems to be that uh, they needed some particular instruction in what it looks like uh, to, to, to lead their families well, you know, to, to love their families well. Um, it seems to be that the, 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 the prevailing idea was that family was a, was a hindrance. Um, if you had, happen to have family, then you have to pretty much disregard them or, or, or crack on with life the way you want it because they're going to hold you back. Marriage is a drag and, and all this holds you back from where you want to be. It just sort of restricts you, restricts your opportunities. Especially among a society that says you can go out and have whatever you want. Paul instructs the older women to show the young women instead how to love their husbands and children, it says there in verse 5, how to be self-controlled and pure working at home. Um, sometimes we get stuck on this term, working at home. Is Paul teaching that, that, that women aren't allowed to work and have jobs and, and go out and have a career? Certainly not. Um, that's not. That's not what he's getting at at all. Working at home simply means to be occupied or focused on domestic affairs. It, doesn't mean, it means rather not being neglectful um, of our responsibilities. Um, another, another translation of the Bible puts it, uh, um, working at home puts, you know, uh, it as a home lover. You have to be a home lover. Not disinterested or disconnected from home life. By the way, it's not to say that men had no role and have no role in the home. Of course they do. 
but of particular concern to Paul in this Cretan culture seem to be uh, what we're reading here. Uh, the home, as, as, as then as it is now, is the key place of love, uh, of life for these things to be nurtured. And younger women, it seems to be, needed to see that modeled well by older women because they weren't seeing it from anywhere else. They weren't seeing it from the world around them. And then he goes on to say, uh, wives are be, to be submissive to their husbands. And when you, when you read that, you might start thinking of the handmaiden's tale or something like that. That is not what Paul had in mind when he said that. But instead, there's to be, uh, from the younger women who are married, willing, active, voluntary, coming under the husband's leadership at home. Younger men, then he goes on in verse 6, are to be, there it is again, self-controlled. It seems to be that everyone struggles with self-control in this culture. And then he addresses Titus, who himself was probably aligned with the younger men in terms of uh, his generation. Uh, and he says to Titus, show yourself as a young man in respects, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching to show integrity and dignity and soundness of speech. Again, this is what is to characterize the younger men in the church, integrity and dignity. And then finally he addresses, in the typical Greco-Roman household code, the servants or the slaves, depending on how your uh, translation puts it. Uh, those paid employees, I suppose, of the church, um, it's, yes, there was probably more than that. Maybe, maybe there was um, you know, a sort of a voluntary or an involuntary um, servantship there going on. Um, often that was the way that uh, debts were paid for a limited period of time. You would, you would sort of uh, um, give yourself as a servant or a slave to a particular house in order to pay your debts when you couldn't afford to pay debts and so forth. Um, Paul himself actually calls himself a slave of God in, in the beginning of the letter. But uh, if you're under you know, an employee, let's just say, of a, of a household, uh, you're a worker, uh, Paul says you're to be a good worker, uh, not pilfering, <laughs> uh, not, you know, not lippy, not, not, not light-fingered, not thieving uh, from the family kitty. You're to be fully trustworthy. So going through the typical Greco-Roman household code, Paul shows what it means to be the radical ordinary. Maybe you can start to understand then why it is radical and why it is ordinary. These are ordinary relationships within the home, but particularly within the church. And yet it's radical if we actually start living like that. It's pretty radical, isn't it? Particularly in our day and age. So we've thought about what is the radical ordinary, but let's just push forward and let's ask ourselves, then what does the radical ordinary achieve? You know, what, what is the purpose of this whole thing? And maybe as you read this through and hear my brief explanation of some of these terms in here, uh, you're thinking to yourself, well, that is just so regressive. You know, so, not only that, it's boring. It's very, very boring. It's dull. Um, it's kind of old-fashioned. Certainly not very flashy, is it, what we're talking about here. But this is what the radical ordinary looks like, according to Paul. And Paul, of course, is addressing, as he does in all of his letters, the most important issues that he sees in those churches at that time. And you might be listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, oh, it just sounds so very conservative, very, 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 very old school, you know, very old traditional type of faith. And indeed, it can be said um, on one level that there are many parts of the Bible, and particularly in its ethical teaching, that does sound very conservative as we would label it in today's um, language in terms of contemporary ethics. 
Uh, but it's important to, to underscore just now that the, 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 the Christian faith and, and Christianity, so to speak, is not just being conservative socially or it's not just being conservative politically. That's not what Christian faith is at all. Um, yes, it's true that there are certain parts of the Bible that can be labelled um, you know, in contemporary terms as conservative, but there are, of course, other parts of the Bible, many teachings, that can be understood, to use modern language, as, as liberal teaching. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about politically and socially liberal. For example, the calls to a vision of radical racial reconciliation, or the pursuit of justice, or care for the poor and the immigrant and the orphan. These are all strongly and firmly advocated from the earliest moments of the scripture up until now. And even by the same writer, the Apostle Paul, who wrote what we're reading now, he also advocated for radical racial reconciliation, care for the poor, and so forth. What we see when we take all this together is that the biblical vision for, for a life, uh, a life of flourishing and faith, transcends our sort of binary, polarized categories, left and right. Uh, conservative and liberal and so forth. But what does, let's get back to our question, what does the, the radical ordinary actually achieve? What is the purpose of it? What's the goal? What's it trying to do? Um, well, we've already seen, haven't we, that the, the, the Titus is trying to uh, help people to get the truth straight and allow the truth to shape them. He's to show them uh, uh, what way they should live in response to the truth. And uh, I suppose it can be thought of as a, a universal um, human uh, law in some ways is that how you live shows what you believe. We've thought about this before. How you live shows what you believe. And also it sort of works in reverse as well. How you, what you believe shapes how you live. So how you live shows what you believe and what you believe shapes how you live. There's a sort of two-way dialectic, I suppose, a conversation between those two. For example, uh, where do we get this? Um, uh, in verse 5, for example, he says to the young women, uh, I want you to live such counter-cultural, such radically ordinary lives, he says, that the word of God may not be reviled. All right, so I want you to live in such a way that the, the good news, that the message is not mocked by outsiders because of the way you're living. So belief and, and, and lifestyle very much measure up and, and match up. Well, likewise, he says to uh, the young men, similarly in verses 7 and 8, I want you to live such countercultural, radically ordinary lives that your speech may not be condemned by outsiders. Okay, so you are to live in such a way that outsiders can see and hear and not mock your faith maybe spoken in a very positive, and this is very amazing, a very positive way. There's two negative examples. A positive example in verse 10, when Paul addresses slaves or servants, you know, the lowest in that sort of uh, hierarchy, I suppose we could say. He says, I want you to live and work in such a way, he says, that adorns, in verse 10, the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, he says, I want you to live in such a way that you beautify the gospel. I think, I think this is amazing because interestingly, in, in, uh, particularly again in Greco-Roman society in the ancient Near East particularly, um, it was the elites of society that, that, that actually literally adorned the city. You know, through their patronage, through their support, through their influence, 
They got stuff done. They got stuff paid for. They erected statues and avenues and wonderful trees and made it all amazing. They were the ones who were adorning the city, the ones who were at the top of the triangle. But here in the church, it's those who were the lowest in society, so to speak, the servants and the slaves who have the, the greatest honor of, of adorning the gospel, beautifying it. So what does the radical ordinary achieve? Well, through our lives, through our interactions, young men, young women, older men, older women, through our interactions, through our, the quality of our relationships, we make the gospel attractive to those outside. Okay, to take it a little bit further, we're not making the gospel beautiful, we're demonstrating the beauty of the gospel. It is beautiful. And it's our interactions with one another that declare that and demonstrate that to the world around. I wonder if you realize this as, as you come into church, and particularly if you're one of the regulars here at Foundation, do you realize that this is what is happening in your relationships, for better or worse? Let me put it like this. Your, your life, your ordinary relationships, if we can call them that, and the quality of those relationships beautifies the message of God's salvation in Jesus. Why, why is this? Why, why is it that there is such a high value on how we interact, how we love, how we go about the ordinary thing of life with each other? Why is there such a high value? Um, I think that uh, Christians, particularly today in, in contemporary, let's just say, Western society, um, their, their ordinary relationships, just like what we're reading here, are seen as increasingly radical and less mainstream as the years are going on. You know, in days gone by, it's fair to say that Christian values, that, you know, similar to what we're saying here, and society's values very broadly, you know, very much overlapped. It's hard to tell one from the other because the sort of, you know, society in general was kind of Christian. And, uh, and, and therefore, this, what we're saying here would not have been particularly radical or eye-raising or anything, eyebrow-raising or anything like that. It would have been a Christian country or a Christian you know, part of the world. But that's less and less the case, is it not, as, as we're moving forward. Um, less and less uh, our society is being defined by Christian values of old. More and more society is saying, increasingly saying, it is your personal freedom that matters the most above all things. It is the desires and needs of the individual which is uppermost, dictating everything else that happens. Okay, it's different in non-Western societies where the, the uppermost is the family or the clan or even the nation. That's most important. But for, for us in the West, it is the individual that is king or queen. And so therefore it is up to us as kings and queens of ourselves to indulge our freedoms and to, to satisfy our desires however we want. Everything else exists so that you can find satisfaction for yourself. And so family exists for you to find satisfaction. Or if it's not family, then for you it might be career that exists in order for you to find satisfaction. Or sex exists for your satisfaction. Or money or security. And it's up to you, it's up to us to go and get it. All right? Whatever it takes in order to be satisfied. And we should therefore stop at nothing until we are 
have our fill. That's what is in the world around us. That's what's in the air that we breathe. And yet the gospel, the Christian gospel says there is a hole in your heart that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. In fact, there's one old leader of the church, St. Augustine, he put it effectively, you've been created with that hole in your heart. You've been created with this yearning and with this desire. It's been put there by God so that you will hunger and desire after him because only him, only he can satisfy, only he can fulfill what you really need. But because of the air we breathe, we find ourselves looking in all the wrong areas to find that satisfaction that only God can give us. We've pulled away from the source. And it's God himself is the source. We've cut ourselves off from the source. But in the gospel, Jesus comes to rescue us from our sin. He comes to rescue us from our rebellion, from our ignorance, from our foolishness, from our stupidity, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through the future of hope of life with him. Right? And so when we see Jesus as our saviour and as our friend and as the, the faithful lover of our soul, who, the one who ravishes our hearts, the one who laid his life down for us so that we might have life, when you see him like that, then you will want to live for him. That then you will experience a radical transformation of your heart and your mind. Then you will no longer be satisfied to live for yourself, just like society is trying to squeeze you to do. Instead, you will find your joy and your satisfaction by living for Jesus, only Jesus. If you get the truth straight, then you will live the radical ordinary. You will find yourself pushing against the tide of an ocean of self-fulfillment. The radical ordinary says, it's only Jesus and what he's done for me and, and who he is and him alone. It's only in him that I could be truly fulfilled. And so our relationships within the church through the generations will reflect that. We will say as a community, we want to live along his plans, not our own. We want to go with him, serving him, not serving myself. Can you see how radically ordinary that is? We want to live together a life which adorns, uh, which beautifies the gospel of Jesus. The church is just a group, isn't it? It's a group of people who are radically ordinary. So we've thought about what is, what is the radical ordinary in these verses here. And we've just been thinking together about what does the radical ordinary achieve. And so thirdly and finally, then we're going to think, well, how do we become radically ordinary? Um, it's clear, isn't it, from the start, I mentioned it earlier, that, that um, the household and the church overlap. Um, but primarily, this text here is talking about relationships within the church. Okay, just get that clear. That's why Paul, for example, says older men, younger women, rather than husbands, wives, kids. You know, he doesn't say that, does he? He says older men, older women. Generational thing. 
Neither is this teaching limited to marriage or homes. It's, it's applied, broadly speaking, to the church. It's about our life together in community. A bunch of people, ordinary rad- radicals, community on mission. That's who we are. So how do we become ordinarily radical? Um, two things. Actually, no, three. I've just realized. Um, three ways that we can become ordinarily radical. First of all, test yourself against Scripture. It's so obvious, but it needs to be stated. Test yourself against Scripture. Read what we've just read here. Reflect on that. You've got it on your service sheets. The act is a lovely little bookmark you can take home or stick on the fridge. Read it through. Reflect and ask yourself, how do I become radically ordinary? How do I adopt some of these things into my own life? What do I need to repent of to, to get there? Okay, what do I need to turn away from to, to get there? What do I need to live out even more strongly, even more vibrantly? Was there one thing that as we read this list through that really stuck out to you? You thought, well, that is something I'm really struggling with. To live radically ordinarily, we need power from the Holy Spirit to help us. We need his power to let the truth shape us. And so as you test yourself against Scripture, pray, listen, reflect, and he'll give you the power to change. So how do you become radically ordinary? Test yourself against Scripture. The second thing is then consider how this truth will shape you today. Remember, this is not an exhaustive list as if you can just do these things and then you're radically ordinary, as if that's all young men need is just to be self-controlled. It's a good start, but there's more that we need to learn together. Amen? Um, But these are the most pressing issues that Paul saw in Crete. And so um, allow me then in the style of, of Paul address you more directly and add some contemporary pressing needs that I suspect that we need to hear as a church. So first of all, let me address older men. And don't forget the criteria here, 40s and above, generally speaking. Older men, if that's you, you must reject apathy. Reject comfort. Don't lose your edge as you age. In fact, guard your passion for the gospel. Instead, use your years of Christian experience and maturity to to lead by example, to, to demonstrate dignity. Model to the younger men what years of Christian experience and walking with Jesus and being filled with the Spirit looks like. They need to see it in you. To older women, don't be reduced to slander, gossip and divisive speech. Show what it looks like to have decades of faithfulness to Jesus shape you. Show to the other women and men in the church what it looks like to grow in prayer. Strive to become a powerful asset in the church that that you can shape the next generation of godly women through your example and through your teaching. Younger women, stop your comparisons. 
Stop looking at other women that you might consider to be more beautiful than you, more athletic than you, more intelligent than you, more successful than you, more together than you. Instagram is a liar. Instead, embrace wisdom from God, not from social media. You know, aiming to be a wife and a mother are excellent aims. It's not for everyone, I understand that. There are other callings available, other ways to live out radical faith for God, I I know that. But young women reject society's lies that marriage and faithfulness and family just get in your way. That is not true. In the words of one other pastor, don't think less of yourself but learn to think of yourself less. Your freedom is in Jesus. Younger men, finally I want to address you. Learn to grow in resilience. Take the opportunity now, while you're young, to train yourself up. Get into training with other young men. Become spiritually strong together. With each passing month, develop the musculature of faith. Learn to suffer for Jesus, because you will need to in the future. And while you're at it, seek uh, mentorship from godly older men who are showing you how to live for Jesus. Don't reject the gift. We test ourselves against scripture. We consider how the truth shapes us today. And thirdly, how to become radically ordinary. We ensure close proximity with one another. In an actual household, it's not hard to live together. It's not hard to be close, for better or worse. It's less organic today. We're more spaced out with people coming from all parts of Belfast and further afield to come to church. And various lockdowns over the past few years have made this even more pronounced and even more difficult. We're just starting to reconnect, I suppose. But Paul's teaching here, his his vision for radically ordinary uh, life together assumes that we are in community with one another. It assumes that our lives are bumping up against each other, rather like items in the washing machine. So therefore, we must have openness to one another's lives, access to one another's lives. Don't just rely on Sunday gatherings, as nice as they are, to be the sole time when you're in community with other people. Too many of us, I think, are too busy to even begin to contemplate the kind of life, the organic connectedness that Paul is talking about here. You know, we will never become, I think, a community on mission. We'll never never live the radical ordinary together if we don't ensure close proximity. And to put it the other way around, if we pull away from church and community then we take ourselves out of the primary growth plan that God has for us, the primary mission that God has for us. 
And that's why we build in prayer gatherings and family hangouts and other opportunities to get together so that we can be together, we can, we can grow together and, and pray together. Always thinking to ourselves, how can the older men help the younger men? How can the older women help the younger women? And so forth. So let's finish by summing up like this. How we live in response to the gospel can adorn the gospel. Um, the gospel is the, is the irresistible jewel that the world is searching for. And you have it. So don't underestimate what you can bring in your relationships with one another. Yes, they are ordinary on one level, but they're so radical. And if, if we commit ourselves to living the radical ordinary as a community, we will be increasingly filled with power and potency to be able to point people to Jesus.